atonement, and maybe even the title here is wrong, because maybe what we should actually be talking about is metaphors of the atonement. That is that I think what has happened historically is that people like Anselm of Canterbury, I'm not sure if he actually meant to give us a full-blown alternative understanding, but that's what in fact has happened. He may have just meant it to be a kind of metaphor. But let me, uh, to begin to, where would we go to understand the meaning of the life, death, resurrection? Where would, where would we turn to know what the meaning of the atonement is? The Gospels. The Gospels, that the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels. That, that is the real world events that we're always referring to. So when we say atonement, what is the the word is I, I, the idea is reconciliation, right? The idea being brought it, and that is a real world event that has occurred in the Gospels. And what we're trying to do is explain it. Uh, and to the degree that any metaphor or theory takes away from these real world events, I would say the theory is to be set aside. That's kind of our will be our criteria. Does it? Does it explain what's happening in the Gospels? So the movement through the, the Gospels to the book of Acts describes the reality, the establishment of these, the alternative kingdom, these alternative people. And what we're trying to explain today then is what that, what that reality amounts to. So if this is our measure, I think we've already deemed some theories or metaphors as more unwor- as unworthy because they are by their very nature otherworldly. In other words, what's happening in the Gospels is very much about a historical event within the historical realm. It's not really concerned uh, with what's happening in the mind of God. Um, so the point is not so much to work out a rational explanation which is Anselm's project, right? But a real-world historical explanation. If we just had to quickly go through metaphors of the atonement in Scripture, what would be some of the metaphors that are there in Scripture? Adoption. Okay, adoption, uh, family, you know, that you're, you're a child of God. Uh, what would be another one? Okay, redemption, that you've been slaves and now you're redeemed. Those two may be the big ones, right? And and maybe they're interconnected, that you were once slaves and now you're sons. Uh, what would be another one? Sacrifice? There is the, the idea of, of uh, Christ laying down his life for us, okay? Okay. Uh, Military victory is a big one, right? The idea of uh, Christ defeating the principalities and powers, overcoming. So uh, the picture is that Christ has revealed through this divinitive truth, revealed through Christ, he's reconciled all things to himself, including humans. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's healed us 
You know, healing is a big... I talked last time about therapeuon. And therapy is one that's sort of healing. The healing ministry of Jesus is very much present there in the Gospels, but we tend to leave it out in our understanding or where it fits in our present day uh, understanding. Uh, He's poured out his spirit into us. We have new life. So we also talked about propitiation versus expiation. The idea of propitiation is, you know, a payment for sins. We kind of threw that out in favor of a real removal. I'm going to, let me, I'm about to make a departure here. I'm about to raise this question. And the way that I'm about to raise it is already wrong. But I'm going to go ahead and do it and see if you can understand why it's wrong. Um, So when we talk about atonement, we're really talking about reconciliation. And the idea is that there is an obstacle between us and God. But what is the nature of the obstacle? And so you could break down the historical theories of the atonement, uh, or even the biblical theories, according to three obstacles. The obstacle was in Satan. Um, this one is uh, the clearly the doctrine of the early church. What's another name for this idea that it's been kind of resurrected in the 20th century? And they've called it Christus Victor, right? Uh, Augustus Allen. I don't know, have you... Uh, dealt with Allen at all. Um, but it is, Allen is saying that Christus Victor or uh, the defeat of Satan uh, reconc- uh, or redemption, that all of that, welcome. Oh, that's all right. Uh, that all of those then are the early church's understanding and the biblical understanding. Um, and I'm going to talk about that one more than any other. Because, in fact, I'm, that's the one I think is uh, more precise. But even the way I've stated it so far, I haven't quite hit it right. The other obstacle would be to say that the obstacle is in man. That, uh, and there's two theories, two ideas here that man, you know, is in some way needs to be brought to repentance. And one of the ways that he's brought to repentance is by a demonstration of the love of God in the cross of Christ, that the cross is a demonstration of love, and this theory would be called the moral influence theory. Okay, And there is another one that has to do with man that is almost the opposite of the moral influence theory, and it's called the governmental theory. And the idea is that the cross is not a demonstration of love, but it's a demonstration of, Christ, of righteousness, of God's demands you know, for uh, righteousness. Uh, the other would be that there is an obstacle in the mind of God that we need you know, to satisfy God's honor in the picture of Anselm of Canterbury, or that we need... Uh, to in some way pay a penalty as it's worked out in Calvin. Uh, and I think we should distinguish between 
divine sat- theory of divine satisfaction and penal substitution. I think they're both wrong-headed in, to a degree, but I think that penal substitution, John Calvin's, where we get propitiation, and we went through all of those terms last time, is the crudest and the most wrong-headed and the most, I mean, that's what we, we've all more or less been taught. Uh, as far as I know, that's the standard understanding in Christian churches or, or you know, whatever. Uh, and I just think that it uh, that once you go there, several things are going to go wrong. One is you're you're going to, you know, in both divine satisfaction and uh, the uh, penal substitution. It is an exchange that takes place primarily between God and Christ. It really doesn't deal with the lived reality of the human condition. With penal substitution in particular, you have a problem with just who God is because God seems to have an anger problem uh, and he needs to unleash that anger. And there seems to be a split then between the Father and the Son. Now, people who believe in penal substitution would argue this, uh, but even people who believe it are going to talk about the need to reconcile God's anger with God's love, and in some way the cross does it. Um, So, but even the way I've just described the problem, I don't think I've yet said what the problem is. And the way that I raise the question, I think, is already problematic. Help me. How is it that I've, I've already misdirected you? I think I've... You want, you want to, anybody want to jump in? What have I left out? What's been left out? Oh, Okay, yeah, maybe we need, and and I'm going to do that. We're going to go, and we're just going to start looking at some passages. But the the thing that uh, I've not said is what is there in the Bible. And what is there in the Bible, the focus, when we start looking at various passages, is that the obstacle is not in any of these persons. It's in a, a sin. And death. So the obstacle is not actually, I would say, in any of these. But actually the obstacle uh, involves Satan, it involves man, it involves God. But what it ultimately is constituted by, and Paul will describe this, but I think throughout the New Testament, um, is to say that uh, it's sin and death. And sin is not going to be identified with any of these, even the human aspect, as definitive, right? We're not, by definition, uh, you know, uh, that's not the only thing that we are, is sinners. But Paul will say, it was no longer me or I that was doing it, it was sin within me. The understanding, so we've kind of, I've gone through these and, and what I would say about each of the three ideas, God, man, and Satan, uh, that it, we probably are describing the problem in the wrong way. And so the way that 
you know, in a Christus Victor understanding that I think is a corrective to this and that is often left out is that the atonement defeated the powers of evil. And we did this one earlier. I said that the cross is addressing the problem of evil uh, or the powers of evil, uh, which would include sin and death and Satan, that these have held man prisoner. They've held him in, uh, you know, they've been in dominion over him. And we can call this understanding, you know, in the early church, it's the idea we mentioned, biblical metaphors, the idea of a ransom, that we were under slavery and now we've been ransomed out of slavery. Uh, Or it can be pictured as a victory over those powers that, you know, a kind of military victory. Uh, Gustav Allen makes the case, and I think he's correct, that this is the understanding that dominated for a thousand years in the early church until Anselm of Canterbury. And Anselm of Canterbury, we've probably talked about enough, but his entire project is one of giving rational proofs. And so, too, his uh, proof of why a God-man, why the need for the cross, uh, focuses then upon uh, providing not a biblical exegesis, but a principle or reason. And what he's going to do, the great failure of Anselm, is that he's always working with the law, that the whole theory is about the law, and the law is re- left up and running. Uh, that is, that part of the what we're describing with Christus Victor is that one of the things that is defeated is our subjection uh, to the powers that be, and one of those that powers that be is in fact described in various places as the law. Uh, you know, think of the passage that we've just read in Galatians, that the law is pictured as a kind of uh, a tutor, or in fact the slave that brings us, so that those under the care of this, you know, uh, idea of a, of, a, of a slave are treated as children. They're treated as immature. Um, so, the law itself is part of the problem. And that's what's missed, I think, in both uh, Anselm's divine satisfaction and Calvin's penal substitution, that Christianity itself is worked out entirely in terms of the law And so that New Testament Christianity ends up just being an extension of the problem and not a resolution of the problem. And, you know, we could stop here and just describe all of the shattering of an authentic Christianity that's occurred because we've not understood the main thing about what we're here for, why, you know, and that is the cross of Christ. If we miss the meaning of the cross of Christ, I think we've missed it all. And so we've described a perverse Christianity, a perverse understanding of God. I think that all of that flows out of and supports then 
a uh, the idea of penal substitution, as worked out by Calvin. We're all, in this sense, Protestants, you know, have inherited Luther's and Calvin's doctrine of the cross, and so it's it's highly problematic. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church is probably the one group that uh, has something like what Gustav Allen is describing as the early view of the church, and that is of uh, Christus Victor. Um, so, uh, the way that Al- Allen, the re- corrective that he brings to many people's understanding that if you go to people like Origen or the early church fathers, there is a kind of crude understanding that is called ransom theory, in which Christ you know, is pictured as paying a price directly to the devil. Maybe you see this in uh, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's, you know, when the when Aslan dies, it in some ways looks like uh, early church ransom theory. Allen's point is that it wasn't a ransom paid to the devil, but it was, in fact, to liberate from bondage to sin and death and the devil. And I think that he's probably, I think he's right. It wasn't that the devil was a singular you know, if you think in the New Testament, it's the principalities and powers. It's the, you know, the forces of the world. It's the, the powers themselves in some way. Uh, up to and including even then a perverse understanding of the law. So, it should not be, and the, this is the key difference, that with Anselm you have a system of... Uh, almost like a monetary exchange. Anselm will even use the metaphor of money, of payment. And what we have is not so much, you know, liberation in that sense, but liberation from the slavery of sickness, the sickness of sin and death and uh, the oppression of the devil. Um the picture, this picture that Alan is presenting, and, and it's become widely accepted now. Uh, Greg Boyd will, I don't know if you know who Greg Boyd is, he, he uses this a lot in his, and, and I think has developed it very nicely. Uh, but it is consistent with an Old Testament understanding of, you know, the story, what's happening in the story of the Old and the New Testament. Uh, it's there is this conflict and the a cosmic kind of conflict in which uh, God is in battle with hostile forces. You know whether it be idols, whether it be you know uh, Satan, sea monsters, um, and so the if even in uh, non-jewish cultures you know that that's this was the whole idea of marduk and baal is that in some way these deities would help them in resisting these forces but for the jews it was yahweh who warred against and would save them you know that god is pictured as trampling the waters vanquishing the cosmic forces or cosmic monsters and so this cosmic battle 
is not weakened when we come to the New Testament, but in fact, by the time you get to the Gospels, this apocalyptic kind of language is, is in fact, uh, even in, you know, uh, emphasized more, so that Jesus is going to talk about a confrontation. Um, so, this understanding uh, is a reversal of uh, the idea of both divine satisfaction and penal substitution um, in that it is a real-world event. It's a historical event. It fits with what's happening in the narratives of the Gospels, and it fits with, then, the idea of a lived you know, reality. That John... Uh, you know, pictures Jesus as, as believing that Satan in John uh, is pictured as the prince of this world. Uh, he's the archon, the ruler of the air, according to Paul. Uh, he's, you know, the archon is the highest official. Uh, he's lord over all creation. And so, in a sense, Satan is like uh, a god functionally, uh, that Jesus is going to challenge. Uh, in Luke, he possesses all the kingdoms of the world, Luke 4, 5 to 6. Uh, he gives those kingdoms to, you know, he even offers to give them to Jesus. Uh, they're in Revelation pictured, you know, ultimately the entire earth is pictured under the rule of Satan, Revelation eleven fifteen, Revelation 13. Uh, John says that the world is under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Uh, Paul says that Satan is the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 2, he says he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Uh, so this, there is this pervasive, oppressive, diabolical influence um, that is this world systems, you know, even the word cosmos in John. Uh, and both Galatians 1, 4, Ephesians 5, 6 says this world then is, is, you know, under an evil force. It's fundamentally evil. And Jesus then is pictured as vanquishing this power, this ruler, uh, and to restore humans back to their rightful place. So if you go back to the dominion mandate in Genesis, you know, man is pictured as the proper ruler, and Satan has in some way uh, taken the place, the proper place of human beings. Uh, and Jesus' healings, you know, when, when he heals someone, even if they're not, if it's not a direct demon possession, it's pictured as a, an encounter with Satan. It's a liberation uh, from those who are held within his power. Uh, when Peter talks about the deliverance of Cornelius, he said, uh, or rather, he, he, Peter's preaching to Cornelius, he says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Um. Gustav, Island, or, uh, Gustav uh, Wingren says, when Jesus heals the sick, 
and drives out evil spirits. Satan's dominion is departing and God's kingdom is coming. Matthew 12. All Christ's activity is therefore a conflict with the devil. Acts 10, 38. God, uh, God's son took flesh and became man that he might overthrow the power of the devil and bring an end to his work. Hebrews 2, 14, 1 John 3, 8. So, demonic influences, the forces of the devil, or the principalities and the powers, uh, that this is definitive of the purpose that Jesus came, the purpose of the life, death, and resurrection of, of Christ, to defeat the rulers. He's against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, uh, the powers of darkness, uh, the spiritual forces, Paul says, in the heavenly places in Ephesians. He's defeating the roaring lion, you know, who is going back and forth in First Peter to consume whom he might. So that this was the ever-present reality uh, that uh, Jesus is confronting. Um, we read rulers... Uh, principalities, powers, authorities, dominions, cosmic powers, thrones, spiritual forces, elemental spirits of the universe. It, you know, we could multiply the language, but the idea is the world is under the power uh, in various ways. of uh, It's in rebellion, and that rebellion then can work in any number of ways. And so why did Jesus come? 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, John 12, 31. He came to drive out the prince of this world. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. He came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Fear of death, of course, right before that is pictured as being something that Satan himself exercises. 1 Corinthians 15.25 Jesus lived, died, and rose to, to put all his enemies under his feet. Uh, Luke 11.21-22 uh, He came to you know, bind the strong man who was fully armed uh, and uh, he came so that he would not attack and overpower us. Uh, he came in John 10.10. 10, uh, the cosmic thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came into the world to vanquish the thief. And then it says that all may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, Colossians 2.15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made it public example of them triumphing over them at the cross. Uh, Jesus came in Luke 4.18, Ephesians 4.8, to end the cosmic war that has been raging from time immemorial and to set Satan's captains, captives free. We could go through, uh, you know, we could just go through all of Scripture from Genesis, the first prophecy given, you know, in Genesis 3.15, is that he will crush the head and you will bruise his heel. Uh, the very first Christian sermon I already referenced, uh, that Peter stood up and he says, Jesus, 
This Jesus God raised up, and were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, put in a place of power, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself, in this psalm, gets quoted more than any other psalm. Do you know what psalm it is that I'm about to say? It's the most quoted Old Testament passage, I think, in the New Testament. 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The two things go together. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. And that means that the enemies, the powers, have been put in under subjection. Uh, the rest, you know, therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Um, so, Oscar Coleman, the way he puts it, nothing shows more clearly how the concept of the present uh, lordship of Christ and also of his constant, consequent victory over the angel power stands at the very center of of early Christian thought than the frequent citation of Psalms 110.1. So, this is the theme, both from Genesis, the uh, wisdom literature, the poetry, uh, through his incarnation, life, teachings, death, and resurrection, Jesus manifested the power of God over Satan, demons, and the entire spectrum of rebellious principalities and powers. Uh, The one who, you know, in a sense, the thrones, dominion, rulers, and powers that Jesus created them, but they're out of control, and he's come then to put them back uh, into their proper place. And he's done that through his incarnation, his death and resurrection, as Colossians says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this is what Christ accomplished. Uh, The cross is God's final settlement of the satanic opposing power which has arisen against God. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness, Acts 26 says, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Um, Paul says about the Gentiles that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, and so they need to be set free from the power of Satan um, and brought into the power of God. Uh, then they can be in a position to receive forgiveness of sins. Um, forgiveness is certainly a, a key part of this, but the idea is the deliverance from Satan uh, you know, comes prior to. You know, if you think even about the moral influence theory or uh, the idea... Is God incapable of forgiving us apart from the death of Christ? The question is a bit of a misconstrual, isn't it? 
you know, think here, people often point to the story of the prodigal son, uh, that the father is waiting with open arms. But what's the problem? Well, the boy won't come home. And so if we think of it in the terms that we've just read, uh, the boy was in the grip of, you know, these principalities and powers. He's gone to a foreign country. And so the problem is not that the father won't forgive. The problem is bringing the boy home that he might be forgiven. And so I think that's the picture in the New Testament that you have deliverance and forgiveness, but the deliverance precedes the forgiveness. So, yes. Okay, so if deliverance precedes forgiveness, how does that affect our missiology? Uh, I think that when we go and tell people about Christ, that the message... I don't know that, you know, that everybody is under the principalities and powers. And those principalities and powers are punishing forces. They're not kind. These are not benevolent powers. These are powers that destroy people's lives, that put them in slavery, that make them subject to death. And so being delivered out of those systems, you know, in Japan, uh, just doing identity as a Japanese person in the way that they do identity is a kind of living hell. And so to be delivered out of that into an alternative community of people where you're loved and and accepted, not on the basis of ethnicity or race, or but just on the basis of uh, uh, an agape love, in a sense that is then to enter into the forgiveness that God has available to us through a community of believers. So I don't, uh, you know, we go out and we preach forgiveness, but in Japan, and I think Japan is not unusual, do people know they need forgiveness? You know, we presume that to be the case we, you know, in a kind of Western context. We just presume that everybody knows they're guilty. But what we've described, I think, I hope I've described it successfully, is that our problem is not so much a conscious guilt as an all-inclusive shame. And shame is so whole, you know, it's so all-consuming that it's something that even to articulate and name is difficult. In Japan, there is no concept, you know, even the word sin is there is no word sin. There's And so in the, translating the New Testament, you have a problem. So the word that gets translated is crime. And most Japanese say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I've never committed a crime. And so there is no, there is no just instinctive sense of being guilty in the way that we might imagine And then, you know, the way that we tend to preach this, oh, you already know you're guilty, therefore you'll recognize your need for forgiveness. Well, no, you may not understand even a a sense of guilt, but do they understand a sense of the way in which they're in bondage and, you know, subject to shame, and that they can then be accepted into a family, a people, a kingdom? Oh, yeah, that, that resonates. Am I talking to you? Is that is that hitting the point? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, and I, you know, that 
again, I think our Western sensibility here, we because partly because of our under, a theological understanding of what our problem is, that we have this strong sense of guilt uh, that may be a, a, a Judeo-Christian development that uh, in many ways does not get at what I've just described. We've got a bigger problem uh, than just simply that we've broken a law. Our, the bigger problem is that we've been enslaved. We're under the dominion of powers, the powers that be. And our goodness then, see that's the problem is, that even when we think we're doing good, if we're serving these powers, in fact we're doing evil. And that's the picture in the New Testament. is not just, oh, deliverance from the law, but set free from this present evil age, as Paul says in Galatians. Uh, we need to be liberated from enslavement to the elemental spirits of the world. That's in Galatians, Romans, and Colossians, and Hebrews. Uh, we need to be enabled to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, uh, as Colossians says, by being rescued from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 12 to 13. And this then involves redemption, step one, the forgiveness of sins, step two. Colossians 1, 14. Often I think people don't seek deliverance where it's just like mission is more of a matter of, well, let's just evangelize. Well, how can you have evangelism if you're not telling people what they're saved from? And to tell them what they're saved from, you got to show and demonstrate how God saves us from the power of sin and death. And I think that question just is forgotten about often and, and, yeah, and Western missions. And it's a huge tragedy. Yeah. It's a huge tragedy. Think of a place like Haiti. What's their problem? Is there any problem identifying the principalities and powers? But then you go to Haiti and you preach a gospel about propitiation that has nothing to do with anything. Right? They don't have they don't have their problem is Aristide. Their problem is the powers that be that are literally creating poverty and oppression and starvation and hunger. And we go people go and preach the gospel that is irrelevant. That's just one of example. I think that's always the case. Even in a wealthier nation uh, the powers that be, in fact, are even more enslaving in places. I mean, I was in Japan. There's no wealthier country than Japan. Uh, the powers that be enslave people. And all you have to do is say, do you want deliverance from these principles and powers that are controlling your life? You have to be sophisticated enough as a missiologist to go in and speak the language and be able to identify the powers. What are the idols? What are the principalities and powers? What is the identity that is controlling them? And so missiology uh, 
is, I think, hindered by a gospel in which you have to tell them the bad news, oh, you're going to burn in hell forever. <laughs> and then, well, yeah, but what, how does that, you know, I'm not even sure that, uh, so it doesn't relate to what I've just described, which, by the way, it's just those sorts of, you know, we've already talked that that sort of imagery uh, is lacking. And even when Jesus uses that imagery, he's not talking about a hellish existence elsewhere. Gehenna is the garbage dump down the road. That's the the refuge from a, a, a power that is right there present before them. So I think that what we've done is created this otherworldly place and created an otherworldly gospel that does not address the principalities and powers that have enslaved people corporately and then individually. And of course, that's where I would take this conversation is that this is a thing that people know in their individual experience and that's very much there in the New Testament. Uh, that the spirit, when we talk about the spirit, is life, and the law of life in the spirit has displaced the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is a corporate principle that we serve, but it's also that thing you're doing in your head, that punishing masochistic identity that we tend to take up and imagine is the reality about ourselves. So that people already live in hell. They don't need to be introduced into another form of it. They already know what hell is. All they need to know is there's deliverance from the hell in which they're existing in right now. And so if we're able, in other words, as Christians, if we can't even name that thing, if we can't even identify the predicament in that reigns in people's lives if we don't have a sense of what this dominion, uh, this force is, you know, whatever, however it's constituted, uh, I'm afraid that we're missing the whole point of the, the New Testament. And so Paul says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What law is everybody serving? You know, it's the law of sin and death. And that law is a universal law that describes our corporate identity and our individual identity. Uh, Christ's death has defeated that sort of subjection and founded a new kind of kingdom and people and human subjectivity. Uh that is, Paul describes it as life in the Spirit and in communion with the Trinity. That is, that we actually become co-participants in the Trinity. Both Paul and the writer of Hebrews in many places talk about this as a fear. You know, we're subject to the fear of slavery, uh, uh, to, of death, the law of sin and death. People are controlled in their lives by fear and angst. If we do not take the path that I've just followed, I don't think we, we disenable ourselves to identify the fear. But I think what the New Testament enables us to do is to talk about somebody's deepest fears and identify them. And say, oh, I, I know what 
you know, I'm, I'm familiar with what's controlling your life. And I think that in the New Testament, we have an ability to name those powers that even in, you know, that's the difference between fear and angst, right? In, you know, that fear is usually something, well, I'm afraid of spiders or I'm afraid of, you know, a definitive thing. But people don't know from whence their fears arise. They don't know why they're controlled by, and that's angst, you know, um, that this thing is controlling them and they don't even know how to name it. And so this, Paul describes it as the fear and slavery to this law of sin and death. And this law is voided. Its workings are voided. The punishing effects of this law are voided. I'm afraid in an Anselmian or in a uh, Calvinist doctrine, what you end up with is not resolving the problem of the law of sin and death, but in fact aggravating it. And this is the great tragedy. That instead of relieving people of the masochistic neurosis of a perverse understanding of who God is and the law is, you just play right into it and you aggravate it. So that at its very core, the Christianity that many people practice is not a resolution to their problem. I'm going to say this and you can attack me later. Their Christianity is their problem. Because they have, they've just accepted an understanding that is itself a part of the disease. That is itself a product of the problem. And I think, you know, we could go through the details of Anselm. Uh, it's there in Anselm. Anselm may not be as bad as Calvin. In the, you know, at least in Anselm, there's a little bit of expiation in that he says, well, the cross of Christ does resolve the problem of the human will. But that's what he limits it to. So this is the big shift that you get from the New Testament, the early church, to Anselm. You shift from a kind of cosmic redemption to being redemption all about the empowering of the will. So you remember the ontological argument? Anselm thinks that the ontological argument is a demonstration of his own salvation. He's enabled to think rightly. And he's enabled to think rightly, as he explains in, you know, why a God-man, because the death of Christ has enabled him to will properly. And to will properly is to rightly remember, to rightly understand And so he thinks his rational arguments are a kind of proof of his own redemption. This is, you know, I I don't know if you find that perverse, um, but it is a kind of double sort of thing. He's not only, you know, talking about the power of his arguments, you know, to get to God that I can read, but the idea is he's reducing God to his own thinking and he's reducing the cross of Christ to something that happens completely within uh, his own will. It's interior, you know, there's a gap to the will. So for Anselm, I'd say the the big problem is it's a, a system that never escapes the law. In fact, it reinforces the workings of the law. It's The whole thing is a, 
a, you know, a legal exchange that leaves the law up and running. Now, Calvin is even worse because Calvin, I think that in Anselm, I don't think you necessarily have the problems within the Trinity. He knew Anselm's a, a pretty bright guy, you know. He's nuancing all this fairly carefully. And so in Calvin, though, you have this crude opposition with between the persons of the Trinity uh, that uh, I think is a kind of irreconcilable uh, problem within the Godhead. But then God himself is portrayed violently as a kind of, you know, needing uh, death and blood. And our problem is not the violence of God. Our problem is the violence and death and, you know, bloodletting of human beings. Who killed Jesus? You know, this is the, the key question. You know, it, it's not that God killed Jesus in the Gospels. The enemies are described. We know who they are. We know who killed Jesus. And that's precisely who Christ is overcoming. Those powers that put Jesus on the cross are these visible principalities and powers. And of course, there may be a lot of explanation, you know, that, that there's a whole development within the Catholic Church uh, that by the time you get to Anselm, uh, dealing with penance and various things. But of course, there is the big shift between the early church in which when they talked about the devil and the principalities and powers, they could point at the emperor and say, well, there is the devil incarnate. You know, here's a guy claiming to be God. Emperor worship was up and running. Uh, that they could understand. In other words, when they said the devil, or they weren't talking about a pitchfork, you know, a cloven-hooved red man. They were talking about forces and powers that were embodied. Uh, but when the emperor becomes himself a Christian, I think this is part of the shift. That the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the, the church itself becomes part of the state and the state itself is identified as Christian mistakenly, right? Is, is there any nation state other than the church that is Christian? I mean, this is the big problem in this country because most people would say, well, yes, we are a Christian nation. Well, no, there, that's to say that we are a Christian nation is to in some way displace the people and kingdom and nation that God has established. And so in the strangest sort of way, Christianity has been utilized in the co-opting of the power of the church because we've misidentified the way that God is working. Is God working through the principalities and powers of this world to redeem us? Or is he in fact working through Christ to redeem those principalities and powers? It's a slight difference, but it's a huge difference. We're not saved by the kingdoms of this world. Uh, the president of the United States, whoever he may or she may be, uh, is not your redeemer. 
The United States is not a Christian nation. I'm sorry to inform you. This is a hard, you're talking about missiology. This is a tough one. In Japan, do you think anybody would think to put up the uh, rising sun flag in the church? It's never going to happen because they understand being Japanese is connected to an entirely different system. If you would put the, the you know, the Hinamaru, the, the, the Japanese flag in a church, that's what happened during the militaristic period. The emperor forced, you know, his picture was there and people were forced to pow- bow to the powers that be. In this country, we bow our knee to Baal and we're not even coerced to do it. And strangely enough, the state then has co-opted the power of the church too often uh, and the church has not understood their own identity. And I suppose that should be a lect- another lecture is what is the church and what is the... Uh, but anyway, that's the uh, my quick lecture.